For my ally is the Force. And a powerful ally it is. Life creates it. Makes it grow. Its energy surrounds us and binds us. Luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. You must feel the force around you. Here, between you, me, the tree, the rock, everywhere. I am a Jedi, like my father before me. Don't know the power of the dark side. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. I got a bad feeling about this. Hey guys, and welcome back to Star Wars Year by Podcast. I am Comedian Steel Saunders, and I do love Star Wars. And this is normally a Patreon bonus on the Steel Wars podcast feed and the Blue Harvest podcast feed because it is a crossover bonus podcast released into the wild, co-hosted by my good buddy and yours from the Blue Harvest podcast. It's Horst Burkhart. How you doing, man? I'm good, buddy. How are you? I am really well. Um, Jacqueline's out for dinner. Harrison's asleep. And Jerry is grazing the food bowl. Sounds lovely. So for people that maybe just listen to your podcast and not mine, they can do like, um, try to work out who's who (laughs) in my, um, in my family by that. But, uh, no, I am very good. And, uh, as I was saying, that this is normally a Patreon bonus show, and the deal is that me and Hawes both bought the Star Wars Year by Year, a visual history, updated and expanded edition. We go through it year by year and talk about the articles. Much fun Star Wars conversation does spring up. We also have a habit of not sticking to the year we're meant to be talking about. (laughs) You might. I mean, we can't guarantee it. But there could very well be an out-of-place Shadows of the Empire reference somewhere oh, here. Dude, spoilers. <laughs> That's horrible. What is it? Is this episode four, Hawes, do you think? It is. Okay. So, uh, yeah, if you want to find out what was going on in... Uh, 1974, that's on the previous episode on our both our Patreon little feeds on Patreon. Patreon is the best place to get Patreon feeds, I've found, Hawes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Alrighty, Hawes, 1975, set the scene for us, buddy. Alrighty, um, Ra- Ralph McQuarrie, so that's what we're, yep, we're jumping off with some Ralph McQuarrie. This, um, 
this page, I have to say, features my all-time favorite Ralph McQuarrie concept piece, prominently displayed. Uh, Ralph McQuarrie always already has an extensive career as a technical illustrator and several film posters to his credit when he first meets Lucas. McQuarrie admits he finds satisfaction in watching machinery and studying how bits of things relate to each other. Working on The Star Wars, he finds his collaboration with Lucas stimulating because the movie story is not set in time. This gives me quite a sense of liberation. With this sort of freedom, an illustrator's work is enormous fun. And fun is fun. All right. So one of your favorite Ralph McQuarrie illustrations is on this spread. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. All right. It is. All right. So I'm going to break them down for everyone. You've got um, the artwork of Luke Starkiller, I think. He is at that time with a mask fighting Darth Vader. And Darth Vader's got a blaster as well. But... um, and yeah, Luke Skywalker, or whoever Luke Skywalker is, he's got a uh, a breath mask. You've got the concept C three PO and R two D two in the desert, with mm-hmm. uh, C three PO looking very Metropolis gold droid. You've got the Cloud City Bespin um, among the which. Cl- <clears throat> if you read the annotation, there's an interesting piece of information I never knew. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, February 12th, the imperial city of Alderaan floats in grey clouds. So, is that the same? I thought they just made it grey because it was in the background of this um, spread, but he originally did it with grey clouds. Yeah. So, is the Empire Strikes Back image of Bespin the same painting with the colour change, or did he repaint it? You know, honestly, I don't know. Um, Come clean, Macquarie. Come clean. Hey, man, he had to crank out a lot of work. Some shortcuts needed to be made. Well, that's like the um, the Vanity Fair photos. And there's the one of Mark Hamill. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. it's it's from the last movie. Yeah, man. (sighs) Yeah. I love those J.W. Rensler books. Man, I got to say, I think the most interesting J.W. Rensler books would be the ones we're never going to get, though. Right. I think there there is some stories to be told that we may never hear. Or may hear and never be able to say. (laughs) Exactly. The um, Yeah, I feel, I don't know. It doesn't feel right. They they so for everyone they ju- they had a like a photo from last time of of Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker, which they used, and right? Then they, and then they sort of just photoshopped it in another scene with the fire behind it and R two D two, and um, I, I feel I feel like a goof because I you know you make these podcasts going well, you know, and you you know those the, the pictures for Vanity Fair aren't often canon um, because they just set up cool photos. But it, uh, I felt a bit shortchanged there, Hawes. I know. If I mean, I was surprised we got a picture of Mark Hamill at all. So the initial shock led me to just be like, oh, wow, there's Luke. I, I would have never expected to see this. Like, I figured they would keep something like that secretive. Dude, and- exactly the same. Exactly <clears throat> the same. 
And so that's what I, I remember seeing the comparison image, right? Is his is his hood up in the Last Jedi one as well? I you know, know what I mean? I'm not. I can't remember. It's, yeah, I can't remember it. I, it's it's you know, it's it's already tarnished. Hood up, hood down. It matters What's a little matter? to me. Yeah. So um. Yeah, we have to work out whether Ralph Macquarie uh, just colorized that thing. But it, it is interesting to look at Bespin. And, and mm-hmm. it's described in the caption as the Imperial City because Ralph Macquarie used it as concept art for Star Wars. But it is very interesting to look at it like the Bespin and go, what if that was an Imperial City? What's right, or what if that was Alderaan? Because <laughs> yes. that's what it says, the Imperial City of Alderaan. Ah. But, but yeah, I think at that point, who knows what it was then? Because you know how he just uses names, like he just like oh yeah, copies and pastes them. Oh, Georgie boy. All right. Anyway, so we're trying to break down. This is the segment where we're trying to break down <laughs> Hawes's favorite Ralph Macquarie image. So so far, we've got the Luke and Darth C three PO and R two D two, the Gray Cloud City. Then there's the Y wings going into. A, a bit Starkiller base-ish looking um, Death Star arrangement. And then there's a, uh, a very nice artistic piece of uh, like a bit of a shootout on Tatooine with um, what I guess would become Greedo actually standing up and drawing his weapon against, I guess, who would become Han Solo. So um, a lot more dangerous a situation there than um, the the under the table shenanigans that we're used to Hawes. Yeah. And a very beefy stormtrooper. You see that guy? Beefy. (laughs) Beefy. I am. um, I'm going to guess that the Luke and Darth is your favorite one. You are correct. I knew it. I I know your, I know your sensibilities Hawes. Yeah, buddy. I mean, I just like that Vader costume. Like I remember because when I was a kid, I didn't have like a lot of the concept art books or anything like that. And so the first time I ever saw this sort of like concept of Darth Vader. Can I I just jump in? Yeah. That sounded like it was heading to a real sob story. Like when I was a kid, you know, I, I only had half an R2-D2. That was all. That, <laughs> but it was, it turned out to be so light. I didn't have any of the concept books. It was really, it was, I was doing it tough. Not, <laughs> not a concept book. I didn't, I didn't know the development of the snow speeder. Nothing. Nope, it was nothing, man. I was a times. man without information. <laughs> um, and the first time I saw this like sort of depiction of Vader in this form, do you remember the, uh, they had to have come out around the time of the special editions. They were Topps collector cards that were widescreen format. Yes, I, I, I love that. Me too. And on the back of one of them, so they would be, you know, just frames from the movies in widescreen. But on the back, they'd have a little bit of information and sometimes a little piece of concept art. And uh, that's the first time on the back of one of those cards is when I saw sort of this depiction of Vader. And uh, I think it's really cool. And I love how they sort of um, went this route for the Vader and Rebels. Ah, yeah, with the more um, 
menacing uh, grill. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, all right. What else have we got going on this one, Hawes? Uh, something else I think is really neat. Um, January 28th, Lucas completes the second draft titled Adventures of the Star Killer, a radical reworking of the first draft. According to Lucas, only a few scenes remain unchanged. The new opening sequence focuses on R2-D2 and C-3PO, now referred to as droids. The change... The change startles Alan Ladd Jr. (laughs) and Coppola, who thought the first draft was fine. And what I love about this is that he had it bound and embossed in gold. Look at that. That cover... It's it's pretty exceptional. It's um, the sacred Jedi text. Do you think the new script startled Alan Ladd Jr. or the cover? Probably the cover. He was like, "Damn, he went all out this time." Spared no expense, but it is this gold foil cover of a script, mind you. And then in this sort of seventies spiral font, <laughs> it's what does it say? It just says the Star Killer. And then in yeah. the middle, it's got Adventures of Starkiller. But um, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's got like luxury, a bit of, of a disco vibe. And then yep. the blandest font ever, just saying the Adventures <laughs> of Starkiller. <laughs> oh, man. That's got to be somewhere in like the, uh, the Lucasfilm archives, right? You'd hope. Imagine if Star Wars didn't work out right. Mm-hmm. And it really shouldn't have because there's like 300 like very lucky mistakes that sort of saved it or got it to to the point where we love it. And um, the so it doesn't work out. And then like you just did a garage sale or um, you know something like like here in LA like the garage sales are always really interesting because people you know used to work in movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. So you always sort of think you're going to find this you know, a, a pile of Revenge of the Jedi posters or something. And um, so Star Wars doesn't work out, but then you just find this script and this gold glitter, and then you open it up and the story of Star Wars is in it. Like, Oh, my God. What a... I, I, I wonder if, like, without all the special effects and the acting and stuff, just the, the script, and it's in an early form, but I wonder if it would just captivate you where... Because, you know, we love Star Wars so much, Wars. And just if it just, it's just the connection of the story just hooked us in and you just became as big a fan of Star Wars as you are now, but you're the only person <laughs> who knows Inc- about Star Wars. Incredibly niche. Like, you're the only. Do- you, have you seen the trailer? I can't remember the name. There's a movie coming out where. Like this guy wakes up one day and nobody's ever heard of the Beatles. I've seen, yeah, I've, I've seen posters for this, yeah. I saw the trailer and I remember hearing about the concept maybe like a year or so ago and being like, I don't know, but the trailer actually seemed kind of fun because like he's the only person in the world that remembers the Beatles. So he starts re-recording their songs and touring them and stuff. Yeah, that's so um I always wonder that with skateboarding. Because like you could go back. If you went back in time, like when I skateboarded all the time, if I went back in time ten years, 
I'd be like the best skateboarder in the world. Oh, I gotcha. Because it like progressed so much that um, it's 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 so weird. Like I think a kid now that skateboards for like six months because it's progressed so much will instantly be better than I ever was. Right. Just because the starting level is so high or whatever. So, so what we should do instead is go back in time and stop that Beatles movie from being made and make your finding the Star Wars script story as a movie. I mean, I love the Beatles, but that's a way better movie. It'd be frustrating. Don't you think it'd be like, um, it'd be like a tragedy. Right. And then like at the end, he sees the portal to the other dimension, the other reality. And <laughs> he, he sees like Bob Iger opening Galaxy's Edge and he's like, what? And then he, but he, can't, he can't get through to that reality. And oh. he's like stuck. As, and, and, and at the same time that he's looking through this portal, unknowing to him, his gold um, book is on fire and it's burning. Oh, this is like a Black Mirror episode. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to go a little darker and say he sees through the portal and sees a bunch of Last Jedi trolls. And he's like, you know what? I'm good. I'll stay here. (laughs) Either or. Either or. Um, All right. Gold script. What's up next, Hawes? Um. Uh, okay, this is one that I think is pretty neat. Droids in the ju- Desert. In his first painting for Lucas, McCory depicts the droids R2-D2 and C-3PO, a.k.a. R2-D2 and C-3PO on a sand planet. I gave R2 three legs, figuring he'd throw himself forward like a person on crutches. Hey, man. I picked up some landscape from a photograph of the Oregon co- or Oregon Oregon coast because I like the cliff and I just put the sand dunes in at Lucas's instruction. McCory revises C3PO making him appear less human and more mechanical. And this is the painting that if you've ever heard Anthony Daniels talk about star Wars that he references as seeing in Lucas's office when he went in to meet with him about the role. I um I got a confession, Paul. Okay. This might shock you. Mm-hmm. I always, especially when I was younger, resented the Star Wars Ralph Macquarie concept art. Why is that? Because it was just off what it was. It, I got gotcha. you. Like it sort of some of it seems. Like, it's older. Like, the aesthetic is sort of more, I guess, 70s than 80s. Right. Well, I could kind of see what you were saying. Like, so, for instance, if, let's say, they really are doing some sort of movie set thousands of years before, like, The Phantom Menace. Like, I could almost see that design of C-3PO being more like the type of droid you would see then. Yes. Right? Same thing goes for, like, Luke and Invader. Yeah, it's just a little bit more historic. Or, or, or definitely fr- from where they decided Star Wars technology was in the films, you know, it, it's 
the world that's depicted in this concept art is like way more, um, you know, less advanced than what we saw in the film. Yeah. And some pieces have more of like, um, definitely more of a, like a Buck Rogers feel to him or something, which makes a lot of sense, obviously considering its influence on star Wars. Like there's one coming up when we turn the page that like, there's some definitely some Buck Rogers business going on. But get this, the concept art for Return of the Jedi, I just love it. And and that's one that Ralph McQuarrie didn't work a ton on, right? Hey, hey, I'm not I'm not stepping to McQuarrie. Right. No, I know you're not. I'm just saying, like, isn't that the case, though? Didn't he sort of back out towards the beginning of Return of the Jedi because he was sort of burnt out on it? Yeah, I think he saw the Ewoks. And, oh, um, really? And maybe decided it wasn't for him anymore but um no i think i like like return of jedi is my favorite film of course but i think because the star wars aesthetic was so set in stone by that point yeah so it's just sort of variations of what ended up on the screen sort of thing yeah it definitely even some of the empire strikes back stuff is so close you know like uh there's definitely some variation in that one but by the time Return of the Jedi rolls around, they've got it down pretty well. Well, even in um, Stephen Sansweet's iconic um, book, Concept Screen to Collectible, and I say that with that—that that is that is the sacred text as as far as I'm concerned in my Star Wars fandom. But um, they had some concept art in there of Yoda. And he was far more wizardy, and then there was other ones where he was far more elfy, like sort of yeah, almost like a gnome. Yeah, man. And I remember when I first saw him, I was like, "Yeah, I love this book, but I'm not digging this page at all." <laughs> I gotta say, like, maybe it's because when I first saw these, you know, it was sort of during the the time when we weren't getting new Star Wars, and it was almost like seeing new Star Wars, Star Wars stuff I'd never seen before, but like. I love when they do statues of these like concept arts. I love those concept art figures that they did. I actually um, hunted a few of those down during celebration and ended up only getting the Kiati Mundi concept figure. What? Yeah, you've never seen that one? Is there seriously a Kiati Mundi concept figure? There is, and he's got an eye patch. And they made a statue of it. Not a statue, a Hasbro figure. Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't even no. know that. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They. Uh, I actually got two pretty cool Kia D, like, you know, uh, I guess you would say sort of like interesting takes on Kia D Mundi figures. I got the concept figure and then I got his Clone Wars figure. So he's done sort of in the Clone Wars animated style. Right, and, also and pretty cool. Drop the knowledge on who Kiati Mundi is for everyone that maybe um, isn't as uh, in the loop. He is the best part of the prequels. I don't care what King Tom says. He's snarky. He's the Jedi. And for the record, one of the few Jedi masters that's on the council through the entire prequel trilogy. He's got the big head that, you know, may look like a part of the male anatomy. Um, he's very worried about the droid attack on the Wookiees. He's mm-hmm. great. 
He um he does seem like a bit of a stick in the mud. He does. He does. But to his credit and the film's credit, Revenge of the Sith, when he does get slain, you do go, didn't deserve that, but. <laughs> no, man. And you know, like, during that Order 66 scene in Revenge of the Sith, you see a lot of Jedi go down that you've only seen glimpses of, to be fair. You know, like Plo Koon, you barely see in the prequels. And um, uh, why can't I remember her name? The Blue Lady. Um, um, Ayla Sakura? Ayla Sakura. Like, you barely see her. But Kiadi Mundi, like, look, he's not a main character, but he's got dialogue, at least in all three prequels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they take him out. It's, it's brutal. I wish he had survived because then, like, I could be that guy that's always like, oh, is he going to show up in Rebels? Oh, is he going to be in the new video game? <laughs> he still might be in the video game, horse. Don't worry. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've always... The, the early concept art, it, it's sort of... Um, I appreciate it, but I don't like it. I gotcha. I gotcha. And like, you know, like I look at... C-3PO and I, you know, get like the, the film history that went, I, like, I, I appreciate all that, but yeah, it just, I don't know. It, it, it just sort of, I don't know if it's just like subconsciously reminding me of how bad this film could have been. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's one of those things, man. Like what if that's what C-3PO looked like? Would, would we, would he be as iconic as he is now? I don't think so, but... Yeah, but, like, if... Just say Lucas, like, it was just five years earlier. Mm-hmm. And he was, like, making the same film. Like, it... Like, who knows how it would turn... Like, it was just... As I say, a, a lot of a lot of happy uh, accidents. But, um... I have to say, that concept art picture of sort of, like, Tatooine the Cantina with Greedo and Han pulling... The weapons that that almost looks like concept art for Galaxy's Edge. Oh yeah, yeah. I guess from the vi- videos and stuff I've seen, uh, I could see that sort of being like. Um, well, I, I guess I don't really have any reference where it is, but I can sort of see what you're talking about, like the area where all the shops and stuff are. Yes. Mm-hmm. I can totally see that. It's all connected, Hawes. It's all connected. Now, on the next page is just a giant spread of... Um, I actually do like this concept art because the land speed looks so good, but it's uh, Luke looking over the cliff face to Mos Eisley. And uh, there's a land speeder, which is a... It's got a roof. It's got little fold-up little windows, like the Thunderhawk in Mask. Yeah, gold wing doors. Ah, going doors, exactly. Uh, DeLorean doors. And then, mm-hmm. and then in very out of focus is C-3PO in R2-D2. And I guess I like this one because they're so out of focus that I can't tell what style they're drawn in. But the land speeder is a, looks like a... F- I don't think he should have had this in the film. But, but it looks cool. Yeah, but if I had a choice of having Luke's one or this one, I'm going this one. For sure. Is this a design that, because, you know, one of the things that sort of comes up 
in the Disney era of Star Wars is like some recycling of unused um, Rikori concepts. Like, you know, the character Zeb from Rebels was an unused Chewbacca concept, right? <clears throat> I can't recall ever seeing this speeder show up anywhere, but I would think that would be one that would be cool to bring in. Yeah. A nice uh, little deep cut. I, I like the harmless deep cuts. Um, there's an interesting piece of information in the, the description below. Um, <clears throat> I won't read the whole thing. I'll just get to the, um, the interesting part for a few works weeks during pre-production, the character of Luke became a young woman as evident evidenced in this particular painting, which also shows McCory's design for a land speeder with gold wing doors inspired by Mercedes Benz. Ooh, don't tell the internet about that one. Oof, not my Luke Skywalker horse. Oh my goodness. Hmm. Hey, um, I, so this is what we're looking at is, um, you know, the Moss Eisley, uh, wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious looking over the cliff. And I have looked across at that in real life. It's in Death Valley in California. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And um, the cliff's different, right? There is a mm-hmm. cliff there, but that's not the cliff they film from. But the view of the Moss Isley is the salt flats. Um, and when you look, it is, it is quite chilling. Like it, it was, it was like it was seriously cool to go. Moss Eisley's just there, dudes. So is that from when they finished filming in England and came back and had to reshoot some stuff, right, and add some stuff? Is that when they did that particular filming? Yeah, I don't know if that one was planned or not because it's <coughs> just a it's an effect shot. Oh, I gotcha. And then, do you know what I mean? And then after, like, one of the special editions came out, they made it so there was, you know, there was more busy, like, ships going around and stuff from that view. Right. So, um, but yeah, it, it was it was really, really cool. Um, let's flip that page, Hawes. All right. And some people actually, um, some sickos actually read the book along with us. So we're on page 40, everyone. Yeah. And um, what do you got on? What do you got here, buddy? Um, We have Alex Tavolaris, the brother of production designer Dean, who had worked on the. What's what's Dean's surname? Uh, The same as his brother. Okay, fair enough. Um, Who had worked on The Godfather. (laughs) (laughs) is hired to draw storyboards for the opening sequence of the Star Wars. As with Macquarie's concept paintings, the purpose of the storyboards is not only to communicate visual information to other members of the production, but to calculate the expense of special effects shots for the sequence. His other credits include The Conversation and Hard Times. Uh, dude, there is a whack drawing of Darth Vader on this page. Yeah, man. Um Alex's art style does not 
Yeah, I'm not. I'm not down with it. the The picture of Darth Vader looks like his mouth's a like a vacuum port or something. Yeah, exactly. Oof. And the there's a line drawing of like C three PO where he kind of looks like a robot woman, but there he oh makes me. It'll feel, haunt your dreams. Makes me feel very weird. Makes me feel very weird. Uh, how about this one, Hawes? This one might be important. Lucas meets John Williams. After Lucas tells Steven Spielberg that he's considering a classical romantic soundtrack for The Star Wars, Spielberg introduces him to composer John Williams, who scored Spielberg's first two theatrical releases, The Sugarland Express and Jaws. Mm, historic. Still doing The Star Wars today. So I went and saw John Williams last year. Right. And special guest was Steven Spielberg. And he came out and sort of gave, I don't know, like sort of Oscars style introductions for a few of the songs, mm-hmm. which were very interesting. But um, then when they'd play the song... Spielberg would sit, there was a spare seat for him in the orchestra and he'd, <laughs> and he'd like be surrounded by them all and he'd just look up on the big screen and like watch that scene. So like, you know, one of the greatest things ever is um, that scene in E.T. where the bikes take off. Right. I, that, that just kills me. Like, it just gets me every time. So that's like one of the scenes, right? And so he's just sitting there with the orchestra looking up I just like, what is he thinking? <laughs> It'd been awesome if he just whipped out like a bass guitar or something, <laughs> something that didn't even fit in with the orchestra. Right. <laughs> it's just like, what a what a surreal situation to be in. That you've got like ten thousand people watching you. Ah, it's just very weird. And you're sitting in an orchestra watching your old film, but. He did it with class. He did it with class. Are, are you a um, are you one of these music, uh, you know, aficionados? I mean, I like I enjoy music quite a bit, but I'm not necessarily a film score guy. Like I love John Williams Star Wars scores and E.T. and you know all that stuff, but I'm not one of those guys that can like hear somebody besides John Williams and go, oh, that's uh. Howard Shore, you know, um, and to be honest, like I knew John Williams and that was pretty much it until I got into lost and I liked the lost music so much that I was like, well, who's this guy? And it, Michael Giacchino. So I sort of got into him, but you know, like I buy the new star Wars soundtracks when they come out and I'll listen to them, but it's not something I find myself going back to a ton, even though I enjoy them. I enjoy them more in the context of the movie. That that sounded almost like a threat horse. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. I'll I'll buy these new movie soundtracks and yeah, I'll listen to them, but I won't like it. (laughs) Well, I mean, I like it. It's just, I need some lyrics steel. Ah, really? I like those Jedi steps, just quietly. Yeah, that's a good one. I remember, uh, I remember that just sticking with my, like, the days after The Force Awakens. Just, mm-hmm. I was whistling it. 
I was whistling steps. I told you. Uh, Ray's theme has been my ringtone on my phone since the day after The Force Awakens came out. Like, I think that is easily, you know, just as classic as any other piece of Star Wars music. Well, she's opened up a lot of great phone calls for you. She sure has. How about this one in April, Hawes? Lucas meets Dijkstra. <coughs> Lucas decides to start his own special effects house. <laughs> Love it. Who hasn't thought that? Uh, to save time and money. At the effects company, Future General, he meets with Douglas Trumbull's colleague, John Dijkstra, who assisted Trumbull on 2001 and Silent Running. Lucas explains his ambition to see spaceships in dogfights. What an ambition. That's brilliant. And shows Dijkstra his own collection of aerial battles culled from various war movies. Dijkstra says the effects can be achieved if Lucas finances the building of a motion control camera. That, that sounds like a scene in a film in itself. We can do it, George. Mm-hmm. But we need lots of money. <coughs> yeah, and... Um... It, wasn't there some drama between these two after Star Wars? Like, didn't he go on and and make uh, Battlestar Galactica after this? Like, A New Hope is the only one Dijkstra worked on, right? Yeah. So, yeah, Battlestar Galactica got started on American TV off the back of Star Wars. And, yeah, they sort of got... They poached him and, and George... Did not take it well. No, he did not. He he got um he got proused. Yeah, he sure did. He's not. I you know I just watched um what Empire of Dreams is that the documentary that was on the DVD set? Yeah, back in the day, I watched that for the first time in a little while, and I'm pretty sure John Dykstra is nowhere in that. Not a mention. I don't believe so. Because he, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll of course get to it, but he invented the, what was it, the, the Dijkstra Flex mm-hmm. camera. Love it. Such a, um, he had such a good surname to name something after. Right. So. And his daughter is like a fairly well-known like cosplayer and uh, internet personality now. True that. Um, what about this one, Hawes? Betamax. Mm. May 10th, Betamax, a home video cassette record system developed by Sony, is released. Sony's SL620 videotape recorder, VTR, ships as a console with a 48 centimeter, oh, sorry, with a 48 centimeter, 19 inch, Sony Trinitron TV. The price is $2,495. How expensive is that today? I should look that up. Oh wow, yeah, that would be. Um, that's got to be like ten grand at least, surely. Right. <clears throat> so that was what nineteen seventy five. Yo. And it is two forty nine five. What have you got? An inflation website going on there, horse? I do. I typed it. It popped right up. Horse is lying. He's got a book. Marked. Oh, he's always you were. He's always talking about inflation. It's all he talks about. You were 
So close. It's crazy. Uh, $2,495 of $1,975 would be worth $11,604 in 2019. Damn. Um, what's the most expensive video player you've ever bought, Hawes? Uh, probably my first Blu-ray player. No, which, v- video player, thanks. Oh, I don't know, man. I I don't know that I ever bought a VCR for myself. Really? How much was this yeah. Blu-ray player then? $600. Woof. Yeah. How long ago was that? 2006. Early adopter. Yeah. I once picked up a VCR, Hawes, mm-hmm. for a sweet $999. Whoa, buddy. Do you remember your first VHS you ever bought? Yes, it came... Buying videos was not a big thing in Australia for a long time. Like it was. We were more of a hiring right. culture. But um, if you bought three blank videotapes, sometimes they'd have a promotion where you get like a movie with it. And we got The Last Starfighter. And oh. I watched the bejesus out of that thing. <clears throat> Have I ever told you about the time I got my dad banned from a video rental store when I was a kid? No, but please continue. So we used to go to this place called uh, Movie Time Video when I was very young. Great establishment. And, yes. And I even remember the movie we were renting. It was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And we go up to the counter and you could either rent a movie for one day or two days. And the lady goes, would you like this as a one day or a two day rental? And before my dad can say anything, I pipe up and say, we only need it for one day. We're going to copy it. Banned. Banned from movie time video. (gasps) Bummer, dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. But where are they now? Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> Shut down. Shut down. But, yeah, this video player, it um, it would play videos from America, which was very special. Oh, so it was, like, region-free. Yeah, it was more format. Like, you guys had, like, a different... Um, your like uh, TV N- system is called NTSC, and you guys are on PAL, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you needed a, a you needed a thousand dollar video player to um, that could play both, and it also had long play, which uh, for the time was very advanced. Nice. It was like in that area of time where I was out of school with a job, but living at my parents' house. Oh, the golden years. Dude, you could buy anything. I bought so much dumb shit. Ah, <laughs> uh, the best. Um, once we get to the nineties, then a, a lot of the um, my list of uh, wasted money will will very much be uh, coming up. In- yeah, mine too. Wow. Um. All right, what else do you got on this one, Hawes? 
Um, we skipped over an important one. Oh. March 13th, Shampoo is released, directed by Hal Ashby. The movie stars Warren Beatty and features Carrie Fisher in her oh. theatrical debut. I thought you meant the product. No, no. <laughs> Shampoo was invented in wow. 1975. I can't believe they Before went ha- half the 70s went without shampoo. Well, you look at some of the pictures in here and you you could wonder. You very much could. Um, well, Carrie Fisher looks... Um, I love this look. She's like a, a pirate tennis player or something. Hey, I dig it. Yeah. Got in her own vibe. Um, then we've got June of, uh, 1975 Jaws comes out. Um, Jaws breaks the box office record previously set by the Godfather and becomes the first movie to earn $100 million in theatrical rentals. Man, that made less money than Solo. (laughs) Right? And we got four Jaws movies. Oh, my God. One of them broke a dimension as well. <laughs> um, all right. This one's very interesting, Hawes. July. Joseph Campbell. While working on the third draft summary for the Star Wars, Lucas reads Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces, a book he'd already read while studying anthropology. Lucas is influenced and inspired by Campbell's observations on the cross-cultural and historical similarities of mythical heroes and their journeys. Joseph Campbell, horse, what do you know? Um, I am not as well-read on Joseph Campbell as a lot of our friends and Star Wars colleagues. I recognize his... uh, influence and place in star wars history though hawes made the inverted commas um friends single when he said that no never we don't even have video on so um (laughs) yeah i um you know i i sort of know the broad strokes but um i haven't i haven't delved in there i i it's i always find it weird when um like, like the hero's journey and and people complain that the the new movies don't have the hero's journey or it doesn't it doesn't like fit into these rules and i I kind of think that's one thing that um like all the rules sort of hold Star Wars back or if they did stick to the rules sort of thing yeah you know because uh, I used to be I, a real stickler do you know what I mean right. so, I, so I understand the um the thinking. I, I totally get it too. And I get being attached to elements of star Wars, very like closely attached to them. But I also feel like if we're going to be getting star Wars movies fairly frequently for a long time, then they got to break the mold here and there, you know, like keep it fresh. So I don't know. Hmm. Uh, you got anything else on this page, Hawes? Yep. Uh, maybe one of my favorite pictures on the page, Ben Burt. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is right up your alley. Because Walter Murch is not available for the sound effects and sound design for the Star Wars, Lucas contacts his friend, Professor Ken Mura at the UCS, USC Film Department, who highly recommends Ben Burt. Gary Kurt meet, Kurtz meets with Ben Burt to discuss, discuss Lucas's movie and hires 
Bert to create sound effects for spaceships, weapons, and a Wookiee. Bert begins recording the sounds of animals and vehicles at various locations. And then the picture has Ben Burt looking awesome. To create Wookiee sounds, Ben Burt records a bear called Pooh. And he's just sitting there holding the microphone in front of the bear. The one thing that you don't know about this photo, Hawes, is um, shortly after this was recording was done, the bear attacked Bert. And the sound effect from that recording, that's the Willem scream. <laughs> oh, man, I, I don't believe it. <laughs> um, I remember just being... It was so enchanting for a, a little boy or girl, but I was a boy, um, to see the footage of Ben Burt not recording with bears, but how he would like just have a spanner and just like tap a power line, right, to get the laser sound. Ah, oh, like the fact, like our at, at our primary school, there was portable classrooms, and if you like threw a stone against them, it made like a laser noise, and oh. Oh, like, so just see Ben Burt making all these noises. It sort of, you know, like you'd go outside and just start tapping stuff. It's like, what, what noise could this be? Oh, man, that's cool. Love it. Did you ever have, like, just with sound effects, we had, I've I got to ask some friends that I went to primary school with. One day, this guy just turned up with a synthesizer, like a synthesizer and just gave us a demo one afternoon. Like just, just like just, not a classmate, just a guy showed up and was like, this is a th- synthesizer. And like I'm going to like an adult. Ah. And just gave like a, the whole afternoon just to, like, and someone would like, like talk and that he'd make it repeat and stuff. And it all be like, yeah. And like, it was like the Simpsons, like everyone walked out of there going, we're, we're all getting synthesizers. How much of these things we have to, we're getting into them. Like, Dude, that's a way better than any presentation I saw in school. <laughs> the synth, synth avos. That was, um, that was education in Australia. Um, all right, so I'm flipping the page, I think, Hawes. Okay. I think we've, um, we're on page 42 now, everyone. Uh, what do you got on this one? The third draft. Lucas completes his third draft, now titled The Star Wars from the Adventures of Luke Starkiller. Significant changes included Deke Starkiller being replaced by Princess Leia, and a previously unnamed old man Jedi becomes General Ben Kenobi. Possibly in keeping with Joseph Campbell's analysis of mythology, Luke Starkiller becomes a loner whose deceased father was a Jedi. A loner. Yeah. I wouldn't exactly say he's much of a loner in the final film, though, right? Nah, he's a loner. You think so? Where's all his mates? They got cut out of the film. Yeah, I'm talking about the final film. But even like when he was hanging out with them, he wasn't really... um. They weren't real cool to him, huh? Nah. He, um, but he showed them in that um, The Last Jedi novelization. He showed them all. Wormy, man. Hey, did you ever have an embarrassing, like a nickname you hated when you were a kid? Like Wormy? Mm, nah, my name was too silly to, for anyone to make up something else. 
like like people would say like metal or something like that and it was just but like, nothing good and nothing that stuck man i had one and it was all my mom's fault because during when she was picking me up from school one day she called me and i can't believe i'm saying this one Halsey Walsey <laughs> and dude I went to a very I went to a very small school so like I graduated high school with kids I was in kindergarten with yeah right so like I knew these kids for years and that name stuck for a long time Halsey Walsey wow and ironically Horsey loves the Star Warsy. He does. Dude, that's brutal. I'm constantly making Jackie paranoid that that's going to be her entire existence. Is just like yelling out stuff of the car and stuff to Harry. <laughs> so you're going to do it, dude. You're going to be like the worst one. Like you could be like you could. They could study you. I, I feel like. You've got it in you to be the most embarrassing mother of all time. Have you ever seen that movie uh, Almost Famous? Yes. Yes. You know, yes. You, know, you know when the mom drops him off at the concert mm. and he's walking off and she's like, don't do drugs. <laughs> and all the, all the dudes in the crowd are like, don't do drugs. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it makes me think of. Yeah, that is, <laughs> uh, that is the future. That is the future. Uh, casting begins, Hawes. Lucas's friend, producer Fred Ruse, enlists casting director Diane Cretenden Cretenden to begin casting for the Star Wars at Zeotrope offices at Goldwyn Studios. The early casting process tests about 250 actors a day for three weeks. Wow. Brian De Palma joins Lucas and looks for actors for his upcoming film of Stephen King's Carrie. De Palma considers a young Carrie Fisher for the title role on brand. Um, as a child, I always thought it was weird that the book Carrie was the same name as Princess Leia. Oh, really? That was a Star Wars reference for me, like when I was a little kid, when I was just like nice. desperate for references. Um. Speaking of that Empire of Dreams documentary, there's a lot of good, like, grainy black and white footage of these casting sessions. And you see, like, different people trying out for um, Luke, Han, and Leia. Uh, like, I can't remember the actor's name, but he was in The Great American Hero later. Was, like, one of his bigger roles. Uh, he was trying out for Luke. And then Kurt Russell trying out for Han Solo is one I always enjoy because i like kurt russell quite a bit the greatest american superhero went for the role yeah he went for luke that show is so frustrating man <laughs> well, how did you lose the book <laughs> what a dick it's like losing the book for an nes game back in the day oh my god there's this sh there's a show on television um oh, i guess that's weird it was a superhero show on tv you sort of don't think of superhero shows being on TV back then. But in the 80s, the greatest American superhero, this guy finds this like super suit from alien technology that he's meant to use to save the planet or something, but he loses the instruction manual. So he can't use it properly ever. And it was, it was just so frustrating. 
great theme song though. Amazing theme song, but just find the book. I just want him to be able to fly properly. <laughs> yeah, that's a show that I uh, have vague memories of watching as a kid. Like, I don't remember it a whole lot, but I do. Like, I remember the theme song and the opening credits and a few pieces here and there. I got to say, one of my favorite things to do is imagine Kurt Russell playing all of Harrison Ford's roles and Harrison Ford playing all of Kurt Russell's roles. I have a lot of free time to think, Steele. Excellent. What, what, <laughs> what, what's your favorite um, Kurt Russell role for Harrison Ford to play? Jack Burton from Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, he'd be pretty good at that. Yeah. What about he? He was Snake Blitzkin or whatever as well. Yeah. Yeah, not a bad one, Captain Ron. What's that from? Cap, you've never seen Captain Ron. It's not great, but Captain Ron is a sort of like a romantic ca- comedy movie where Kurt Russell is like the captain of a boat. Maybe Goldie Hawn is in it. I can't remember it real well, but it's definitely not a role you see can envision Harrison Ford doing. Well, I just think that, like, um, Escape from New York, it'd just be so good just, like, to have him, like, Harrison Ford in an eye patch and just saying all those corny lines. Right. Oh, and in the sequel... Doesn't Surfing? He, doesn't he, Yeah, he surfs like a nuclear <laughs> blast or something. Yeah. That would be great to see Harrison Ford do. That'd be amazing. Uh, Lucas meets Joe Johnston... Uh, needing someone to help with the redesign of concept models to create storyboards for front projection sequences, ILM's production manager, Bob Shepard, hires Joe Johnston to start the art department. After meeting with Lucas and John Dykstra, Johnston redesigns the models so they will work better with the blue screen process. Shepard praises Johnston as the only one at ILM who could really make images that you understood which is an important part of images. I have heard Joe Johnston's here painting a Y-wing and he has got almost like a hairdo that's like Darth Vader's, like the top of his mask, the top of his helmet. (laughs) It's like Prince Valiant hair. Oh my God, that is a sweet helmet. I went to a Joe Johnston panel at Comic-Con one year and he's just a true grizzled Hollywood veteran. Yeah, and... You know, there was a lot of like, um, I wouldn't say like uh, fervor, but like people were tossing around the idea of him. Oh, here we go. Directing the Boba Fett movie. Yeah, it's always with this Boba Fett movie. Yeah, man. I won't let that on my deathbed. I'll be like, I sure wish they made that Boba Fett movie. (laughs) Well, maybe in the alternate galaxy, the dude that found the um, Star Wars script he makes his own Boba Fett film. Oh, so how, how's that for irony that he, <laughs> he just pulls out the character of Boba Fett and he's like, let's just do this. Yeah. And it's weird because that character is not even in star Wars. So right. It makes, it makes the whole story even more puzzling, but yeah, he was just like, he just seemed like a dude that just after a day, just, just had a scotch on the rocks. Nice. My kind of dude. He just kicked back. But he was um he was excellent. Hawes, what else you got, buddy? 
Um, we got the UK casting. <clears throat> Because Lucas decides to film much of the movie in England, English actors are cast for the supporting roles, including prominent costume characters. Anthony Daniels, an actor whose experience ranges from stage work to radio dramas and mime, is cast as C-3PO. Although a remote-controlled motorized R2-D2 is planned for some scenes, an empty R2-D2 costume with a rotatable dome that requires a small actor leads to the casting of Kenny Baker a cabaret performer offered for the roles of either Darth Vader or Chewbacca. David Prowse chooses the villain. Peter Mayhew, a porter at London's King college hospital is cast as Chewbacca. All right. Alternate timeline. Number two. Uh Oh, Dave Prowse chooses Chewbacca. Oh, Oh, well, you could get a Darth Vader autograph at Star Wars Celebration a lot easier. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a, another bizarre thing that they they seem to. I, I'm not saying that um, you know David Prowse is a a murderous a murderous evil person, but they do sort of suit the characters they end up with far better than the other way around. Oh, definitely. Like, I don't know how menacing Vader would have been with uh, with old Peter Mayhew behind the wheel. Mm. Um, what else do we have here? What's this? What's going on with uh, Alec Guinness? Uh, he signs on. Yep, and they talk about how they were considering Toshiro Mifune from the Hidden Fortress, a Kurosawa movie, which. You know, obviously, Kurosawa was also a big influence on George Lucas, but they ended up going with Alec Guinness. The English actor Alec Guinness receives a copy of the script and finds himself excited despite the sci-fi genre being a new direction for him. He is impressed by the new breed of filmmaker. You reckon that's... Hmm... Do, do, do you think he went in with higher hopes than he left with Hawes? Uh, it definitely feels that, that way in retrospect. And, you know, hearing about his uh, feelings on the movies afterwards. Yeah, I, I wonder if this is just, you know, like how factual this is. Or did he uh, say one thing one time or... Right. That doesn't uh, it says Guinness realizes the commercial potential in Star Wars and signs a contract that includes 2% of the net profits. Dude. <laughs> you should love those films, Sir Alec. Yeah, man. As should your kids and their grandkids and their kids. Hey, uh, September 4th, the television series Space 1999 premieres in the UK. Uh, did you ever catch this thing? I, I like I saw it, and I remember seeing the toys when I was tiny, but I've got no memory of what actually happened in the show. As far as I know, I've I've never seen it. Mm, but um, the reason why it's getting a mention here is uh, Luke Lucas orders a redesign of Han Solo's pirate ship when he realizes it closely resembles Space 1999's. Eagle transporter ship. 
Uh, both were based on 2001's Lunar Shuttle. So, you know, if you're going to... If you're going to use these influences, you've got to make sure that... What is that? That Krusty the Clown line? You get, like when someone rings him, he goes, unless you're Steve Allen, you're stealing my bit. Oh, that is an excellent Krusty impersonation. Really? I'm not really, one, I'm not really one for impersonations. That's really good. I have a hard enough time being myself, Hawes. I hear you, buddy. Yeah. But um, and then I think that um, the old Falcon became the blockade runner. Am I right? Yeah, slightly redesigned. Like they changed the front bit a little bit and a few things here and there. But it it that's definitely what it became. Mm-hmm. Did we talk about this on another episode? That um, imagine if they used that. Like um, the original one, the one that will go at the space 1999 one. And then just imagine like the Force Awakens with that, <laughs> sh- that ship getting chased by the first order in Jakku, like going through the uh, Star Destroyer, like how bizarre <laughs> that would be. Doesn't work, does it? I don't think we did talk about that, but. I, I've said it to someone, but um, maybe I said it to uh, Robbo. I've definitely, I've, I've, I'm, I'm sure I've recorded that concept before, but um, yeah, I, I've, I've got an edit of it in my head. Like, it's just the, the, the first teaser, the first Force Awakens teaser, <laughs> with it, that ship instead. Yeah, and everyone cheers. Everyone's <laughs> crying. It's, and everybody's all excited talking about Chewie. We're home for that ship. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Be pretty sick. Be pretty sick. Uh, they list a few um, pop culture things going on here. October eleventh in nineteen seventy five, Saturday Night Live started, and November eleventh, Happy Days started. And I just want to mention Happy Days because another. Maybe one of the greatest Simpsons quotes of all time is when Homer's talking to Marge, I think, and he says, um, oh, it's like the time I got swindled by some card sharks and my father, Tom Bosley, had to bail me out. (laughs) And then Marge goes, that's an episode of Happy Days. And Homer goes, oh, no, they weren't all happy days. <laughs> that is a good one. Do you remember? Uh, so good. Happy Days was a dope show, by the way. Speaking of Simpsons, this is one of my favorite Halls and Steel Twitter interactions very early on. Like, ah. uh, It was when they put all of the Simpsons on the FX app a couple of years back, two or three years back. And I had been listening to Steel Wars, caught up on that, started listening to Green Guide Letters. And so I'm sitting there and, you know, I didn't get a lot of the references. And so I'm sitting there watching The Simpsons one day working. And it's the episode where they go to camp. And they watch the uh, like the safety Uh. video before. (laughs) And they drop the Mr. Black and I immediately jump on fo- my phone, get on Twitter and like 
tweet at you like, I'm watching The Simpsons and I just got the Mr. Black reference. Yes. Because whenever someone said something that was a bit scandalous about a famous person in Australia, we'd Mr. Black it. And uh, it became a lovely tradition. But I do remember, yeah, you that clicking. Um, that's so funny. Um, got anything else on this page, Hawes? Um, no, they go more into the actors that uh, auditioned. And it was William Cat. That's the actor from Greatest American Hero. Ah. And, um, you know, they talk about how Harrison Ford was brought in to install a door at the American Zoetrope offices um, and how they, you know, eventually decided on Han Solo, Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill. All right. Here we go. So Harrison Ford, he's given up the acting and uh, he's going full time carpentry. And uh, Coppola's got him fixing a door or something. He's doing some carpentry in California. 1975 Harrison Ford. What, you reckon he's rocking a T-shirt or he's topless? What's going on? Oh, dude, have you seen that panel from the Star Wars comic where dude, he's chopping wood? With it's, ex- the, with- it's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking of. Dude, I, I, I to, after seeing that, I, I had to go chop some wood. You know what I'm saying? Oh, so did I, buddy. I chop wood all over the damn house. What does that mean? Um, <laughs> but yes, very. Um, he 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 very much appreciates woodwork. He likes the craftsmanship of it. Yeah, I remember hearing um, an interview with him before the Force Awakens. Maybe it was when he was promoting like. Cowboys versus aliens or something or Ender's game. And someone brought up the, the carpentry thing. And it was one of the few times in the interview where he like perked up and seemed interested to talk about something. Mm, mm. Yeah. He talks about it with, um, a real respect. Mm-hmm. And who doesn't want to be respected by Harrison Ford? <laughs> I know I do. I know I do too. Hawes. Yes, sir. That's the end of 1975, buddy. I know. Before we started, we were like, I don't know if we can get through all this. Yeah, we really, um, you know, I think we were pretty comprehensive. And uh, next episode, 1976, we're filming Star Wars. Yeah, man. Exciting stuff. We get to see some filming. Yeah, so we put up this episode as a uh, for everyone this week because both of us didn't have episodes this week. Yeah, Will's out of town going to a wedding, and honestly, there's not a lot of Star Wars news to talk about this week. So yeah, and I hadn't organized a uh, a show after my Galaxy's Edge episode, so that I, sometimes I put up these ones like because they're like time based, and it just throws out the my whole schedule. Right. Like I'll bring it out a couple of days early or something. And then that will, will just, it just ruins the schedule cause, but we made content uh, still. Yes, we did. We, we got it done. Got it done. So yeah, if uh, you enjoy this format and you enjoy our uh, podcast, and you want to support them with a couple bucks, 
a uh, month. We've got uh, three prior episodes of this and we're going to make more. Should we make more whores? I hope so. Okay, cool. I bought this big-ass book. You've got a lot of way to go. <laughs> I bought this book twice. I didn't even know. I know, buddy. But um, I do now have the expanded edition. I um, Yeah, when I, I, I got this in America, but when I went home to Australia a couple of months ago, I was going through some books to work out what ultra-heavy things I was going to try to drag back home. And uh, I realized I already owned this but now I've got two copies of photos of Joe Johnson's amazing haircut. <laughs> what you think about that? Hawes, um, for the good listeners of the Steel Wars podcast, how can people find out more about you and your Star Wars thoughts? Um, you can catch me on Twitter at Blue Harvest Pod. Uh, and I do Blue Harvest with my buddy Will. That usually comes out on Saturdays. And I do Rogue One with Jonathan Grosso and Mike Pappas. And those that comes out on Thursdays. And a, a lively episode with all three of you this, <coughs> this week. Man, Mike Pappas was excited to record. Dude, lay off the Red Bull. <laughs> he, was, he was pumped. He was, man. Okay, and uh, for the Blue Harvest listeners, uh, you can follow me at Steel Wars on all the forms of social media and uh, yeah, check out the Steel Wars podcast if you don't already. That would be awesome. Hawes, this was the bestest of times. I'm actually disappointed that um, 1975, you know, we didn't have a smarch or something that we could have um, gotten a... You know, another month of happenings to talk about with. But that yeah. was awesome fun. Yeah, buddy. Thanks for uh, taking the time to record with me. My pleasure. Alrighty, guys. Have a uh, awesome week. Enjoy all things Star Wars. Except the things that just fill you with hate and dread. Push them away. And may that force be with you. You gotta do your ending, horse. What's your oh, ending? Uh, may the force be with you. <laughs> and then Admiral Akbar goes, May the force be with you. Perfect. May the force be with us. <laughs> <laughs>